risks for complex diseases like type 2. In one population, it may have a very strong risk for getting the disease if you have carried that variant. But another population, it can be of very low risk, right? So unless we look at other uh, genomes, we are really not utilizing the power of clinical genomics to the fullest. My name is Kashif, and this is BioRadio. A group of biologists turned bioinformaticians bring you into the world of research and development informatics by interviewing the people responsible for implementing systems and technologies to a unique and diverse set of use cases. Over the last decade, the widespread adoption of next-generation sequencing has ushered a new era of genetics-informed drug development. As the FDA continues to approve gene therapies, NGS-based companion diagnostics, and drugs targeting a genetic signature rather than a disease, population-scale NGS will become routine. However, many countries, particularly from the developing world, still do not have access to the knowledge or the informatics resources to individualize drug therapies. A simple transplantation of bioinformatics from developed to developing countries is unlikely to be feasible. What are the global informatics strategies needed for genomic analysis and their applications towards precision medicine? Today, we're here with Nazneen Aziz. Could you please introduce yourself? I'm Nazneen Aziz. I'm the CEO and uh, president of my company, Varian Genomics, which I founded in 2018. My company's mission is to reduce the accessibility gap that you very nicely introduced of this new field of clinical genomics in community healthcare systems. But the larger vision is to also reduce the accessibility gap of genomic technologies in developing nations, including uh, informed uh, targeted drug therapies that you mentioned. Right, so I guess just taking a step back, um, obviously, NGS is quite widespread. Its ubiquity is only increasing. Why is it important to have globally aware genomes? Yeah, this is a very important question. Um, a study was done in 2016 by Popjoy and Fullerton, and I think it was a Nature paper where they found that 97% of all GWAS studies were of European ancestry population. And in 2015, seven years later, the inclusion of other ethnic population increased uh, to only 20% from 3%. And even this increase was mainly due to studies being done in China and Japan. So the Asian population was more included. So we know a lot more about these population. But other um, ethnic groups, such as the African ancestry population, the Hispanic uh, population, their genome sequence still lagged behind. This is a risk because then what we are creating is inadvertently, even though this is such a powerful technology, NGS, we are inadvertently creating a um, widening gap of what we know about health and disease in the European ancestry population versus what is in the non-European ancestry population. And having more ethnically diverse databases of genome sequences leads to more refined uh, genomic test interpretation. So we have more precise, as the technology suggests, it's really precise uh, uh, diagnosis. 
because um, the same disease phenotypically can have very different causative variants in different population. So therefore, interpretation of a genomic test for a minority person using a wholly Caucasian European database would lead to errors in reporting the true pathogenic variant for a minority population. Right. And so you spoke a bit about the diagnosis of a disease or, un- or understanding of a disease and the presentation of that, you know, phenotypically is what you mentioned. Uh, we're also looking at the genotypic ideology of various diseases. Why is that important to have these ethnically aware uh, genomes? Because um, one example that I'll use of misdiagnosis is that um, in cardiomyopathy, uh, there are some uh, variants that lead to uh, a very high risk of mortality. But this study was done in the European ancestry. And yet African patients were being given in the report that they carry this very life-threatening disease variant when it turned out to be completely benign in that population. So you can do uh, that, like th- these are risks of misdiagnosis. And um, then there are risks for complex diseases like type 2. In one population, it may have a very strong risk for getting the disease if you have carried that variant. But another population, it can be of very low risk, right? So unless we look at other um, genomes, we are really not utilizing the power of clinical genomics to the fullest. Right. And then just taking that a step further, right? So misdiagnosing a disease is is certainly important. Um, I guess one of the other risks that comes to mind is as we move towards more personalized medicine and gene therapy, cell therapies that take advantage of a individual's genome, what's at risk there in terms of drug development and drug discovery? Absolutely. So as you've mentioned, more and more clinical trials are being done by pharmaceutical industry where they're looking at variants that are associated with people who are responders and people who are having toxicity or uh, non-responders, right? So these are really a very powerful way to um, create personalized medicine. That was the dream of this field. And so I will use a certain example of um, clopridogrel or Plavix, which is an antiplatelet therapy that's given to people with um, risk for cardiovascular uh, strokes and in myocardial infarction. And that drug is actually a prodrug that is metabolized by an enzyme called CYP2, cytochrome P450 family. That leads to conversion of the prodrug to the active form. So now this variant that some people have can make that enzyme non-functional. So that means you will not get the active form of the drug. And in certain population like the Chinese, this is at a very high frequency. And in the European population, it's only at 2%. So therefore, you could actually give the drug but have no effect. And if you didn't know, then you wouldn't know how to dose it, right? There are fast metabolizers and slow metabolizers of the variant. So these are potential issues of not looking at other genomes, right, other population, even in drug discovery, because you could be developing a drug that has 
no effectiveness in other population. And there are examples of this that I gave you one, but there are other examples. And it can also lead to toxicity. For example, Blavix can cause bleeding problems if you use it in people who are fast metabolizers. So you could really overdose. So we really need to um, really uh, tackle this problem by looking at other ethnicities um, to really get the power of precision medicine. You spoke about the identification of novel drug targets. Uh, you also talked about clinical trial stratification, You know, finding which ones have this variant and which ones don't that you might be able to test for uh, drug safety or toxicity, et cetera. Um, I guess this is only going to improve the, the precision medicine-guided drug development. Uh, I guess my follow-on question is, why is it important to have the global context when you're developing new drug therapies? So, you know, pharmaceutical companies can use, um, you know, sequencing in their clinical trial and develop a wonderful drug that works and they then sell it when these drugs come off patent. They're even being manufactured in developing nations, Um, but it may not be effective. So people are spending a lot of money, so it's a waste of resources if you don't have a companion diagnostics. But if you don't know what diagnostic markers to test for in that population because you have not included them in larger studies or they were not a part of the clinical trial, then essentially you are not creating a valuable drug. Right, right. So I know previously you were on a uh, NGS committee with pathologists and clinical geneticists to develop the first set of standards and proficiency test development for clinical labs. How do you sort of translate that to other uh, genomes? So I formed a committee uh, with a pathologist and with PhD clinical geneticist to create the first set of standards and proficiency tests. And that was a very critical part of how it got implemented in a very smooth way. Now, as you know, it is routine and it's being done in many, many academic centers, in reference labs, and it's become a routine part of healthcare. But if we had not done it at that time, if we had not taken hold in 2010 to do it in a standard regulated way with less risks of errors, then this field could have, um, I think, come across a lot of potential problems that we have avoided since then. And so to take your question, how do we take this? Essentially, um, that was a time when there was a lot of um, sort of significant concern that clinical labs don't know how to bring this uh, skill set of bioinformatics. And bioinformaticians were great at research sequencing, but they didn't know the clinical world. But that brought the two fields together, the clinicians, the pathologists, and the bioinformaticians who learned the new world of how clinical tests should be done with uh, validation and uh, strict confirmation to a lockdown method of doing things and not changing things on the go. And that um, we don't hear a lot of problems, everything is going very smoothly, but I think the same problems are happening in the developing nations and more so because they're not ready for this technology. So with every new technology or innovation comes the issues of workforce readiness. And are they ready? I'm not quite sure. They can buy the machines and they can run the test, 
but can they do the big data challenges downstream, which is the analysis of the data and the interpretation of variants? That's a skill set they don't have. If I understood you correctly, the, the wet lab side of it, the actual DNA extraction, sample prep, library prep to the sequencing isn't the problem. It's the analysis, the bioinformatics side that's the problem. Uh, what are the different components? Where are people getting stuck in this process? Because you see the infrastructure, I would say, of the country, of the educational system is that they are not ready with informatics as a field. So there's not a lot of data scientists who can do the downstream work. So that's one of the issues. Now you can buy packages of software that comes with the machine, but even then you do have to adapt to the test that you're running. And that um, that is a skill set that's uh, missing. But also interpretation, which is in the third uh, phase of a test. First is the sequencing, then is the data analysis to call out the variants. Sure. But then after you call out the variants or have the uh, variant call files, which is the VCF, you now have to interpret that result and say, okay, what is pathogenic in the patient that I see? That interpretation challenge really is very dependent on databases like OMIM, ClinVar, and ClinGen, and other databases that I'm not mentioning. But if you don't have that kind of database of your ethnic population, then essentially you're not being able to interpret the tests to the fullest capacity. Right. So you spoke about the secondary analysis, meaning calling variants against your reference genome. I guess what you're getting at is the reference genome for that particular ethnicity doesn't exist. Then when you go into the tertiary analysis and what does this mean, you're getting stuck there again in that you don't have that reference genome to compare against. Absolutely. So the second phase was that you are now um, calling variants based on what's the NIH reference uh, genome. But we know that that reference genome was actually of a diverse set of people. It was not, it was a mosaic of four or five people. And there were some African ancestry uh, population there. So that is okay for bioinformatically to call the variants. But the interpretation challenge is huge because you don't have. that resource to compare against who are there healthy people carrying this variant or this disease people who carry this variant and within within a given population right you were talking about the infrastructure the compute resource the bioinformatician the skilled resources there you're also talking about the lack of curated genome specific for a population Uh, I guess there are countries that I know um, outside of the Caucasian population or or European uh, ancestry that have lots of money and resources. Um, I know there are huge initiatives in Qatar in particular and other countries that are that are quite well funded. Why haven't they created these you know uh, genomes that made those pu- publicly available? What are their reservations in not making these publicly available? Um, I know that even China has some very restrictive policies where they don't allow foreign nationals to work with their Chinese database. I think it's uninformed fears of that something will be done, negative consequences will happen if they have the genome database available to other countries. I am a believer of data sharing, and I believe that people in the developing nations should be allowed to access what's in ClinVar and ClinGen and um, even OMIM and other databases. 
and and so the same vice versa and that it would help both sides in to open up the data because this is about health and disease this is right. not about any other issues besides that and genomics should be used only uh, for that reason, not, not for any nefarious reasons, which I think prevent a lot of governments from sharing it. Get it. And then I guess the the point that you're trying to get at in terms of how prevalent a variant is, you know, one of the underlying issues with that is is that you need to know whether a variant is cl- clinically significant or clinically relevant. If you don't have the right comparison, your numbers are going to be off, right? Your, your Absolutely. The statistics don't work. Right. Because, you know, a, a, a variant could be very uh, prevalent in one particular um, ethnic group. And that means that it's probably not disease causative, because if it happens at 20%, then it's probably not causing um, uh, a rare disease, right? And so these uh, population frequencies of variants are different in different populations, and that needs to be considered. Uh, and if you don't have that genome database that you collect over time, it's a cumulative effort, sure. the more that you sequence, the more you know, right? So if you have a population of, uh, let's say, uh, 1,000 Middle Eastern versus 1 million, you'll know a lot more by the time you hit the million because you've had so many incidences of which variants, exactly. So I think these are opportunities that are being missed when they're not sharing it openly, when, when country. And, th- and this is companies do that too over here, like Myriad Genetics and other foundation medicine and so on. I'm not sure whether they're openly sharing the database. And so they are enriching their own interpretive capabilities. But by not sharing it with other labs, you are sort of restricting um, the access to health and disease because you're not being giving it to other um, you know, clinical labs that are nonprofit that are being able to sequence, analyze, but then when it comes to interpretation, they don't have the population, right? They have right. very few people of a certain disease, but if they had access to these other companies' data, it Perhaps would be a different, right. yeah. So, so taking a step back, you mentioned two big problems, right? One is around the compute resources, the other around the genome and having the database of variants to compare against within a given population or ethnicity. Uh, just diving into the first part, the compute resources, both in terms of infrastructure as well as skilled resources, how do you address that? Um, I mean, I think that is an issue that has to be taken up by the governments and the private educators to understand that this technology is coming. Precision medicine is going to become very routine in um, five or 10 years time. And they'll be missing out if they don't prepare their workforce, if they don't have graduates who can just work with the clinical labs to be able to do data analysis and so on and even um, how to create genomic databases. And some internal responsibility lies there. But I think that other international organizations like the World Health Organization, UN, and other large organizations that are health-related should understand that this is becoming an issue of the genomic, let's say, disparity, that we know so much about 
European Caucasian ancestry, but not of the developing nations that are African or Middle Eastern or subcontinental uh, or Asian population. And so in order to reduce that disparity, they could have an initiative and effort and funding to increase the skill set. And then I think the manufacturers also have certain responsibilities, the sequencing machine manufacturers um, and the software um, developers that are creating packages for genomic clinical analysis, that they do have a responsibility to make sure that the technology is not so elitist, right? That it stays in the developed world only, that somehow there is more automation, there's more um, ability to implement and adopt this technology elsewhere. Right. So how do you create this magical database of variants that's truly global, right? How, how would you be able to compare an individual to the global, if there is a, a global genome? That would be ideal, wouldn't it? Um, I mean, I think there are a lot of barriers to this because people are so uh, possessive about their data, and you mentioned nations, right? They hold on, companies hold on to their data. But if we could create this kind of shared public uh, database of different um, population genomes, like everyone is looking at it as a health benefit to humanity rather than their own um, sort of possession uh, out of be it fear or um, Uh, just lack of understanding that what can be done with just knowledge, uh, it should be opened up. But I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, to be idealistic, we would think that someone uh, like the World Health Organization or the UN could start an initiative like that, even if it's a small scale, and that can, over time, expand. And even if it's private companies are, you know, not willing to share the data, a lot of public databases are there that could allow other countries to kind of donate their genome as they sequence their own patient or from their research studies. And and the concept would be just tremendous if we could get there. I guess two questions. One is, do you think, you know, global... Um... NGOs have a role in informatics and and the data sharing side of things. And second question is, uh, how do you prevent people from from using this maliciously? Yes, I mean, I think there is worries that are unfounded that I think that it can be used maliciously because, you know, when you think about it, we do have Chinese nationals over here in the U.S. who are U.S. citizens, but ethnically they're the same as the Chinese mainland population. So much of the fear of not allowing access to one population's genomic data to others is unfounded because I don't really know of what malicious or nefarious things can be done with uh, something so benign as pure knowledge that should be just used for health. At the population level, not obviously at the individual level. Yes, yeah. I mean, I think there's some unfounded concerns and worries that prevent people from sharing uh, these information. And I guess the first part of that, right, is do you you see a role in these non-government organizations, these NGOs 
playing a role in, in data sharing or collaboration? I think that's a brilliant idea. I mean, I think that something like that would make it, that would start it, right? This sharing, global sharing of genomic databases. And I think that some of these larger health initiatives that are international in focus should be aware that we are unwittingly or inadvertently creating this gap in understanding of health and disease through genomics between the developed nations and the developed world. Where do we go from here, right? Uh, in an ideal world, right? What are the steps that we take, whether it's policy change or engagement or getting collaboration or partnerships in place? What, what, what does that look like in your mind? So, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that um, obviously, you know, we don't stop innovating in fear of inadvertent inequalities to healthcare access that it creates. Um, but one step would be for uh, developing nations to look upon us as an opportunity for innovators and technology industry in the developed world to create solutions and products for them. And so you could, um, you know, this is an opportunity, right, for the industry over here, the innovators over here to create a solution that can be easily adopted there. So that's one. Um, another would be um, to create cloud uh, web-based portals, right? So to take it to the cloud, like these labs, as I said, can sequence without an issue because right. it's pretty much automated. But then maybe the data could be accessed by partnerships in the uh, developed nations in the US and Europe or uh, even in Japan and other places where they're more adept at doing it and able to provide the data analysis and the interpretation for them so that they're being able to use it. But hand in hand, there has to be some training so that we can also uh, develop the workforce over time, that they're not left behind. Fast forward, right? If we don't change the way we're approaching drug design or targeted drug therapies using NGS and clinical diagnostics and clinical trial stratification, for instance, using genomics, um, do you foresee this turning into a problem of uh, non-European ancestry or, or non-European descendants have the diseases becoming rare diseases or to the case of like neglected diseases where there's not a lot of emphasis or or drive uh, or, or motivation from pharma companies to target these perhaps unique diseases or interventions? Yeah, as I mentioned, this can certainly lead to this genomic disparity, right, between the European Caucasian uh, population if you focus only there. Right. But if we can include more and more of the non-European ancestry, then obviously we mitigate that problem. But market is not an issue because you see the majority of the world's population is outside it's in the developing sure. world. <laughs> and so the pharmaceutical industries have a, a huge um, market there. And so if, we, if they created drugs that are more suited to that ethnic population by encouraging uh, collaboration or including them in the clinical trials and so forth. I mean, I don't know all the answers. It's a very complex problem. Absolutely. But I think it can lead to uh, mitigation of this widening gap that we are having, that it would be more an effective use of precision medicine because we are using it to its fullest potential and not leaving certain 
minority population, which are minority over here, but not minority in the world, out of the picture, that we know so little about their genetic variants and causes for health and disease. Thank you for listening to BioRadio. I'd like to thank Nazneen for being our guest today, talking about genomic data disparities. I'd also like to thank our listeners. To join the conversation, visit our blog, biorad.io, and don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is an original creation of Biorad Laboratories. Biorad is a trademark of Biorad Laboratories Incorporated. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.